Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, creative coach, and this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat of your life, gain awareness around mental health and spirituality, and own your right to have a dream and take up space. Have you ever been heartbroken? I'm talking the kind of heartbreak that consumes your day, your diet, your sleep, everything. It doesn't just hurt your heart. It hurts your mental health. It can physically hurt. Today's guest for Mental Health Awareness Month is a creator of Heartbroken Anonymous. She's a multifaceted creative that shares her methods of recovering from heartbreak, practicing radical acceptance, and prioritizing your dreams over your job, even when it means walking away from stability. But before that, I want to say a few things. Number one, Unleash Your Inner Creative won two awards last week, and I have to thank you because you are the reason that I do this show, that I keep going, that I have so much passion for it. It won two communicator awards, one for the show as a whole and one for me as a host. So thank you for all your support, and I share this. I just share this with you because... Without you, there would be no show, and I thank you for supporting my dreams, and thanks to the Communicator Awards for recognizing the really special community that we've built in our building. Um, The other thing is, if you love the show, if it means a lot to you, please do leave it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show build visibility and push it up the charts, and I read every single one. They mean so much. And also share the show. Send it to a friend. Text it to a friend. Post about it on your social media. If you post about it, I will repost to share my gratitude Tag at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso. Final thing, in light of Mental Health Awareness Month and the topic of heartbreak, I want to remind you that my single therapy is out now. If you've ever tried to fix something or someone instead of working on yourself, if you've been in a toxic pattern in a relationship, or just a human struggling to learn to love yourself, then this song is for you. You can get it now at the link in the show notes or in my Instagram bio. Okay, now to the guest. Naz Perez is a TV host, producer, and podcaster. Naz and I actually have a lot in common. We both got our start in the entertainment industry in turning on Ellen. For Naz, after Ellen, she went on to produce E! Live from the Red Carpet and E! True Hollywood Story, as well as five seasons of The Bachelor. She eventually left reality TV to follow the biggest dream on her heart, on-camera hosting. When she left The Bachelor, she had no real safety net. But it paid off because today she's a full-time host and has worked for Clever News, Rotten Tomatoes, Fandango, the Los Angeles Dodgers, T-Mobile, and for E! Live from the Red Carpet, which, as you'll recall, is where she had one of her first gigs as a production assistant at the beginning of her Hollywood journey. So full circle. As you'll hear, Naz is extremely vulnerable and honest and just such a pleasure to talk to. So if you love this conversation as much as I did, after you finish listening, you can check her out on the I Don't Get It podcast, which she hosts with The Bachelors, Ashley and Lauren Iconetti. One of the most interesting things about Naz's story is that in the middle of figuring out her career, she went through some pretty debilitating heartbreak. And out of that, she created this beautiful support group called Heartbroken Anonymous that helps people all over the world who are experiencing heartbreak find solace in community and just feel less alone. If you're going through a difficult moment or a heartbreak of any kind right now, or if you just want tools to get through it in the future, this episode will give you all that and more. Now here she is, Naz Perez. I'm super inspired by you, super inspired by your story, but I want to like kind of journey back to the beginning. 
when did your dream start? Like, what was the inciting incident of you wanting to be this badass, multifaceted host and producer and all the things that you do? That's such a fun question. Thanks for asking that, Lauren. And I'm so excited to be here. I am, you know, there's no like defining moment. It's weird. I think I just grew up, you know, like most of all of us in the nineties, like with a hairbrush in front of the mirror. (laughs) And like, I think I just knew I wanted to like perform in some way, but I didn't know in what way. And, and for me, I just like had like this love of film and, and movies And so when I went to college and we, you know, you do the campus tour, I had no idea what I was even going to major in like right before college. And the person giving the tour, you know, that's always like two college freshmen, you know, that like the groups of kids and parents around, I was like, what are you, what are you majoring in? And he was like broadcast journalism. And then it like this light bulb went off in my head where I was like, oh, I can actually go to college and like study to like be on camera. And then like through interning and you know, various jobs and projects and interning, I quickly realized that what I really wanted to do was interview people. I I never anticipated it would be like what it is now. But um, I remember watching Juliana Rancic's True Hollywood Story in my dorm. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to interview people in that capacity. So yeah, it's kind of crazy that like, a lot of it is somewhat coming to fruition. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we're going to get to it, but you're an incredible hustler, but you've also been very creative in your approach to your career where you've seen opportunities, you've put them out there and you've made them happen due to your talent, hard work, hustle, being in the right place at the right time, all these things. And one thing that I did notice from like listening to a few tellings of your story is that you talked about how there was kind of no one that looked like you or who was like of your ethnicity doing what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. How was that something that affected you when you were first thinking about getting into this field? What challenges did you come up against given that? That, That's an interesting question because I think myself with a lot of the world wasn't actually privy to the fact that certain groups of people have been historically omitted from certain opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think for me, thankfully, Juliana Rancic, you know, she was like Italian. So yeah, she didn't like look like me, but I, I never thought it wouldn't be like possible for me. But I will say coming into working my way up as a producer and being in rooms where there aren't a lot of people of color mm-hmm. and this whole like awakening the world has had in the past couple of years has like sort of made me realize mentally that like I did have obstacles that I didn't even realize at the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I remember instances where everyone brings their own perspective and story to like a certain situation. And you know this Lauren, cause you're a producer. So when you pitch an idea for like a segment or wherever I was, it it came from my experience, my learned experience as someone who has like two parents who are Dominican. And when those things get shot down, I didn't realize at the time, it's it's mainly because other people making decisions don't really understand, you know, where you're coming from and why you see things a certain way. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And it's honestly even making me kind of backtrack through a few things I've been through (laughs) and be like, oh, all right, that's what was happening. But like, had you known that at the time, do you think it would have made your journey harder or easier? Like if you had that awareness and if you knew what you were truly up against, I'm curious to know if you think that would have helped you or hurt you. 
I don't think it would have done either because I think at the end of the day, most of the people making the decisions, unfortunately, are like from one group. Have a certain perspective. Exactly. Had a certain perspective. So I don't know if it would have changed anything, but it's so incredible now that a lot of companies and people are becoming more aware of this and hiring more diverse people. But at the end of the day, it's it's never even been about me trying to bring a Latina perspective. I mean, that's a whole nuanced like we could have a whole podcast on that yeah. because there was a lot of um, erasure on my part of my culture. I grew up in like Boca Raton, Florida, and like most of my high school was white. So a lot of my growing up was like trying to fit in and sort of hiding this part of myself. And also like we haven't even gotten there when it comes to like Latinx representation. And the I think the reason is because there is no one Latinx representation. There is no one Latino story. So it, it's kind of hard for people to grasp. And it's hard for people to even show what Latinx representation is because we're all so different and we come from all different parts of the world and we speak all different kinds of Spanish or, or other languages. So, um, so yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just interesting because like, especially our industry tries to clump everybody in together to make, I mean, people do this in general, but to make things easy to understand, like, oh, here's like how we serve the Latino population. And here's how we serve the black population. Here's how we serve women when it's like, yeah, it's so much more complicated than that. And we all have complex stories. And to your point, it's like the erasure part. This is like going off track a little but I, but I relate I'm Italian, hundred percent Italian. Oh, cool. And like when I, really started learning about white supremacy and what it was like in a more insidious way, basically. Mm-hmm. I realized how much it affected my ancestors assimilating and loss of our culture and like right. how we didn't pass down the family recipes and no one in my family speaks Italian because they were trying to become white. Assimilate. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. my I'm very lucky because my both my parents were born in the Dominican Republic. But the thing is, my father moved to New York at a very young age and assimilated. He joined, you know, the U.S. military. He served in four branches. And so my dad was very much like American. And my mom came at the age of 18. So my mom still has somewhat of an accent. And, you know, she brought all those recipes and stuff. So I grew up in a household with like half, which is also kind of confusing too, right? It, It was like, what does it mean? to even be Dominican American, you know, or, or an American born Latinx person, but you're absolutely right. Like, I think that's why I, as someone who, who covers movies and television, I so badly want studios to start greenlighting and telling stories of American born Latinx people. Mm. You know what I mean? Like sort of like the second generation story that that's, I'd like to see more of those. How do you think that having two parents who were born in a different country, like came here, obviously that takes so much courage uh, just to leave the place where you're from and then start a new life in a new place. Mm -hmm. How do you think that affected you and what you thought was possible for your life? I think it was definitely, it affected me on a subconscious level. Like most people who immigrate here think the American dream is you work really hard and you can make it happen. And in a lot of cases, like that's what both of my parents did. And so it was sort of lead by example. And, but I think what really drove me as far as what I've taken from my parents is um, they didn't really have the money to like help support me. So I, I don't think enough people talk about money, especially when it comes to like career, right. And like trying to make it, I don't know why it's like not a thing because for me, not having money was like a massive fuel as to, as to my trajectory. Like 
it's the reason why I didn't wait on tables and became a producer. Not that you can't make a lot of money waiting on tables, but I think I was just striving for like a real security net in case hosting never worked out for me. Right. So I started producing and then made my way to the front of the camera that way. But it was the fuel driving me a lot of the time was because I didn't want to have to move home because I had to pay for rent. Yeah, that's such a great point. I think a lot of us leave the money piece out of it because there's a certain level of shame associated with it. Like there's a, a shame with not having it. And then there's a shame with having it. Yeah. Then there's also a shame with being in the middle. So it's like, no matter where we are, we put our self-worth in money, which is like ridiculous. And obviously like our higher selves, know, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. But our ego selves are down here like, no, this isn't right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Such whiny little bitches. Just stop. <laughs> I know. That's so good, Lauren. You nailed it. There, There is so much shame around money. And, and I had a lot of shame with my parents not having it, I think is really embarrassing for me growing up in Boca and like, and, and let me just say my parents had money. (laughs) Right. But you were mentioning how you were like in your neighborhood, you had the least amount of money in a nice neighborhood, which can be a very isolating feeling. It was so isolating, but you grow up and, and this is a lesson I've learned like recently where I'm just like, I was such a brat, you know, cause my parents really did all that they could for me. And, and I resented them because I didn't feel like I could belong, you know, maybe because I didn't have Uggs or like, you know, 12 Lacoste pastel colored polos to wear with my jean skirt. But um, tragic. Exactly. Like <laughs> how embarrassing. But but I share it transparently because I know that kids go through that and and, and even adults and, and it's a real feeling sometimes. It's all real and it's all relative. And I think Brene Brown talks about like comparative suffering and how there's not some limit on suffering in the world. Like your problems are still problems, even if they're small in comparison to somebody else's. That was a real pain point for you as a child. Now you've grown and you've matured Mm -hmm. so you can see from above, but it's hard and it was hard for you. And I'm sure you did feel isolated. I want to get into your path after this, but I just have to ask you. So there was a moment I was 27. I was walking down the street. I was in Burbank. Oh, nice. Shout out to Burbank. Yay. And uh, I was going through one of the hardest times in my life. I was heartbroken. And I said, oh, my God, my parents are people. I just like had that realization that my parents weren't just people in relation to me. They were people outside of me with their own issues and their own problems. And they had those while they were trying to raise this little human scurrying about the earth. Did you ever have a realization like that in your life? Because it sounds like what you just said was like a realization of your parents were people trying their best. Yeah. And um, it's funny because I learned this lesson actually in the last three months. So I'm a late bloomer because I'm 31, but um, some people never learn it, by the way. So I feel like if we ever get it, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened was I, um, I fell in love with someone who has a child and um, we're no longer together, but it was in dating him that I saw my father through like his eyes in the way that this person was with their daughter and how they would talk about their daughter And, um, it's crazy. It's crazy. Cause I'm, I think I'm like very much still heartbroken over it, but I'm trying to find like the beauty and the lessons and, you know, and stop asking all the whys and just sort of more be thankful. And I think that's one of the most beautiful gifts I ever received. And I think that was the way I had to learn it. It's one of those things where, you know, your friends and family tell you things like your whole life, but you just don't listen. And then you meet someone that's somewhat of a stranger and, and they say it and you just, for some reason, take it more seriously than everyone else. 
And um, I think because I loved him, I, I saw that and I saw his love for his daughter and I came to see my dad in like a whole new way. Like you were saying, as a human and as a person, not as someone that I resented because he didn't have a bunch of money to give me, you know? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. And we're going to get into this amazing project you have called Heartbroken Anonymous, where you bring people together who are experiencing heartbreak to share their loss. Um, and it's amazing and so necessary, especially right now. But before we get into that, I want to talk about your career because you have an amazing one. You came out here just like I did and interned on Ellen. Yeah. Um, I never left Burbank. I'm still here. <laughs> I honestly, I want to go back. I miss Porto's. Oh my gosh. Visit anytime we could come hang by the pool and then walk to Porto's. Um, but tell me a little bit about your journey. Like how did that end up happening first of all? Cause I feel like people are always curious about how that internship comes about. And then how did you journey through that into the rest of your producing career? Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear about your experience. So basically, um, I, I wanted to be like a sideline reporter and work in sports. So in college, I interned at like all these different sports outlets and then right before I graduated, decided I wanted to go into entertainment instead. And I think watching Juliana Rancic's True Hollywood Story was a big catalyst of that, but also just being like the only woman, young woman, like in the live truck in sports, it was very intimidating. And I wasn't sure if it was like something I wanted to feel all the time, if that makes sense. And I don't want to discourage people from going into sports saying that I'm just sharing how I felt in 2012. So I went on this website called internsushi.com and there was an internship for the Ellen DeGeneres show on there. And I did a Skype interview and I received it. And my parents were kind of like pissed because they're like, you did all these internships already. You graduated. Shouldn't you get a job? And I mean, LOL to anyone who graduated in 2012 or like after 2008 to try and get a job out of college and like the great recession, it was awful, you know? So my sort of strategy was like, I've interned a bunch and I, I know how internships work and I know how you can get your foot in the door and you see those people every day and you can make an impression. So I was like, I'm going to intern after college and do the same thing and sort of convince wherever I'm interning to hire me. Yeah. And so that's exactly what happened. I ended up moving out to um, Burbank and working at the Ellen show as an intern, they hired me within a month. And I was living with my mom's like family friends. I was like living in her kid's toy room, making $9 an hour. And thankfully, Ellen, you didn't need college credit for that internship. I should specify that. So that that was why I was able to take it. But yeah, I was just first one there, last one to leave. And then um, I made sure everyone knew that I had already graduated because I also think people often take internships and they assume um, I think people just like wait for things to come to them. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think people assume everyone knows and it's like, nobody knows Like you have to tell everyone what you want to do. And even if you don't know what you want to do, like pick something. And so I told everyone, like, I want to work here. Like I already graduated. And so they knew that. And I got hired within like literally a month of working there. Could I ask you a quick question about that? Yeah. Were you honest about like wanting to be a host at that time too? Or were you mostly focused on just getting the job? That's such a good question. Cause it's always tricky. When I was there, I was like, do I tell them I have these other aspirations or should I just try to like wiggle through and, and do my work? That's such a good question. And I don't think there's a right answer to it. I can tell you that I was very much in production mode and producer mode. And I've always wanted to be a producer as much as I've wanted to be a host. So for me, it was a very honest thing. So I think I would say things like that, like that I majored in broadcast journalism, but no, I didn't make it. I didn't make it super obvious because I also think it's sort of 
you know, companies don't want to invest in people that are going to leave right away, even right. though that's kind of like the nature of the beast now, especially for our generation. But I also like wanted to pay my dues and, and, and yeah, you have to read the room. Exactly. So I think that's so important. A lot of people don't know how to read a room. So yeah. So then I drove to E one day and handed them my resume while I was working at Ellen because okay, I okay, casually. Can yeah. we walk through this? <laughs> yeah, I just drove to E, walked in, handed them my resume. How so did you decide this? Like, how did this actually come to be? Yes, yes. Cause and I've never shared this. It wasn't like super magical like that, but it was in a way where it's like I knew E was on Wilshire. That's where their offices were at the time, because someone that I met in Orlando while I was in college. I went to the University of Central Florida. I used to work at E, so they told me their offices were there. And they told me they knew a woman that still worked there. And her name's Claudia Kagan. She's such an OG badass. She still works in the industry. I don't really talk to her. And so that, when I went to E, I sort of dropped Claudia Kagan's name and like asked Claudia where HR was. Wow. And, but that's, it's like, you can, I tell people all the time, like you can do that so easily. Now you can like watch the credit bed of a show, you know, and slide in someone's DM. Like we didn't have resources like we did now. So I drove there. And so, yeah, within a couple of months of working at Ellen, I got a call from NBC universal, which is the parent company to E entertainment. And they needed someone to work the Mexican billboard awards, like a production assistant that spoke Spanish. And so I did it and I called off sick at Ellen and which by the way, just to give people like context, like no one called off sick there. Yeah. Like the fact that you did that, I'm blown away by your badassery. Do you want to hear like (laughs) how crazy this is? The day I called off was when Taylor was debuting red on the lot. So they actually had to hire more PAs to help. And that's how much I think you have to put yourself first and like, remember what it is you want to do. Yeah. It would have been cool if I handed Taylor Swift a water bottle that day, but then what, like, you know, it's like, this was more, it'd be better to hand yourself one. Yes. This is more important, more in line. It was more important for me to meet people somewhere else, unless I wanted to be the executive producer of Ellen one day, then I would have been happily, you know, stayed and worked my way up there. But I knew that wasn't my dream. And so I ended up working Mexican Billboard Awards. And then like, of course, the directors on that show were the directors from E! Live from the Red Carpet. And they said that they hire eight PAs every award season to help them, you know, produce the shows like the SAGs, the Globes, the Oscars and the Grammys. And, um, you know, they said they had a position open starting like end of December. And so I left Ellen and that was really hard. I remember crying in like the office and because Ellen's like was like the number one daytime talk show at the time. And it was such a solid place to work. So many people wanted to work at Ellen. But again, I was like, you know, what am I going to gain? So I left and I um, worked award season for three months and it was incredible. And then after three months, I had no job and I was just like destitute, you know, like guessing myself, did I make the right decision? And, and a hundred percent I did because after a couple months, they did end up hiring me at each true Hollywood story. But in those months that I was like unemployed, I just started making something out of nothing. And I think that's, what's important to do is like follow your passion. And I always loved fashion and I had this huge background in sports. And so I ended up interviewing the stylist that like dresses athletes because basketball players started really wearing like high fashion items. And I made this website, like in my free time, I would blog about what the athletes were wearing. And funny enough, that actually got me my first paid hosting gig, which was with the style network. 
I got to cover the ESPN awards, the SB awards. They found my blog. And I was also, I will say I was taking hosting classes while I was working at Ellen. And one of the talent people that worked at style network came to our class one day. So that's sort of how that connection came. It's not like this woman randomly found me like she, I mean, she did, but also like I had met her in person before. And so I worked the SB awards and they're like, you killed it. You did so well. Like we're going to launch a new YouTube series, like style news. And in my head, I'm thinking like, I'm 23, it's 2013. I have no agent. Like I made it. I'm going to work for the style network yeah. on camera. And then the whole style network got canceled like three weeks later. So, um, there's so much to break down already. Can I just ask you a couple of questions? Yeah. Okay. First of all, even though you're scared, you're able to go toward risk. I noticed that a lot with many different things in your story. Is that something you built yourself up to, or is it something that's kind of innate in you? Like, how are you so able to do that? And what are your tips for other people who are more risk adverse? I think we hear it all the time, but like the greatest things in life are worth risking and, and take a lot of heart and energy and rejection and vulnerability. And I think there is a part of the vulnerability that is innate in me. I, I think I'm a feeler. I'm an empath. I think when we're born, we know who we are and everyone tells us who we're not. And so mm -hmm. I think when I left home and I went to college, ever since college, I've been trying to like find myself again and find my voice and, and find who I am. And I think you can only do that by doing things. That's how you learn who you are. Like I tell people all the time, I don't think you really know yourself until you travel alone. Mm. When you travel alone and you wake up, right, Lauren, like you have to make every decision that day. So you decide whether you want to have breakfast, like in your hotel, or you want to walk out and venture out. And then you decide what you're going to do after that. And if you're going to walk to a store and if you're, and when you're able to decide and make all the decisions that it takes to live through 24 hours in one day by yourself, then that's who Naz is. That's who you are. That, that is how I would have chosen to spend my time. And so you have to do things to learn who you are. And so I think that's, that's what it's all about, right? Is, is just risking and putting it all on the line. And at the end of the day, the sky is still going to be in the sky. You know, if you don't get the job, if you don't, if you don't get the, the guy you want to be with, the, the sky is still going to be in the sky. You're going to be okay. You're still going to be you and you're going to be better for it. So, and then again, the money thing, I think just like having to make it on my own was, was a huge fire for me. So after the style thing, cause there's so many things like that in, in this career path, it's like, you think you have the thing it's almost in your hands and then it vanishes yeah. out of thin air. And it could be nothing to do with you. Like in that case, you killed it. You did what you were supposed to do mm -hmm. and it vanished, but that moment can still be really heartbreaking. It's what I call creative heartbreak. Yeah. And after that, you have to like pick up the pieces and rebuild and decide to keep going. Yeah. How did you recover from that moment? I think what I'm learning now is I think we as humans need to practice like radical acceptance. We hold on to outcomes and like, you know, it's, oh. it's so Deepak Chopra. Like if only we didn't get attached to things so much, but then it's hard because you're like, I'm human and this is what I wanted. And, and I, I, I would liken it to everyone listening, like applying to colleges, if you're privileged enough to like go to college and you have the money and resources to do so. But like, you know, when you're, when you're applying for colleges 
and you're walking around the campus and you're picturing yourself in like the colors and you're like, I'm going to buy like this sweater and I'm going to live in this building. And these are going to be my friends. And you like fantasize what your life's going to be if you go to that college. And then you get the email that you didn't get accepted in that whole life that you thought just like, yeah. and you'll never know, you'll never know <laughs> what it would have been like to go there. And, and that's in anything. You'll never know what it would have been like to work at that job. Or if you would have married that person that you thought you were going to spend the rest of your life with. And I think practicing radical acceptance is the answer to it. It's just being okay with right here and right now and taking a deep breath and, and being grateful. And, and this is all easier said than done, you know, because it's hard, it's hard. But while I will say looking back, everything that I didn't get, it's like, thank God I didn't get it out of college. I thought I was going to be an NBC page, which is like this program that you can apply to, to work at like 30 rock in New York or here in LA. And, and, and it's a great program, but I thought that was the only way my career was going to kickstart. And instead I ended up working at Ellen and most people, some people that become NBC pages have to be a page for a year and then they work at Ellen. So I'm like, Oh, I saved a year. It's one of those things that just like time and, and patience shows you later on, but God damn, it's so annoying. Cause it's like, when you don't feel it in the moment, you're just like, why, why, why this is so unfair. And all I have to say about that is yeah. Welcome to the human race. Like stop asking why ask, why not you, you know, like we're all dealing with shit. Right. It's true. And rejection really is most, I think it's almost always protection. Like there's something bigger for you, or there's a lesson you needed to learn, or you needed to expand. Like all the times I've failed, I've expanded. Exactly. So I think it's, it's so important. So, okay. So the style thing happens. You're like, Oh my God, why? Yeah. What happens next? So then um, I just continued to work my way up at True Hollywood Story. I became an associate producer. And again, wasn't my dream job, but I encourage anyone who's not in their dream job to try and acquire skills that you'll need for your dream job where you are right now. And there always are some. And so for me, I learned how to make a documentary, how to tell a story, and, and you had to interview people. And at the end of 2015, that entire department got laid off. And so then I went to work on The Bachelor because I was like, well, no one's making documentaries anymore. I got to pay for my rent. But what there is on TV is reality shows. We were living in a reality TV show renaissance in 2015. And and the only show I wanted to work on was Bachelor because I loved love and I watched Juan Pablo season. And I was like, I love traveling. Like, how cool would it be if I could travel and like work on this show? So yeah, so I worked there again, another two years till 2017. And again, not my dream job, not being a host on camera, but I knew that if I interviewed the cast and interviewed people, I could use that skill later on in life. And so I really tried to hone in on my interview skills. And then I left that job, just like how I left Ellen. And and it's really important to know when to leave. It's important to know when to leave a relationship. It's important to know when to leave a job. How do you know? What are the, like the signs? Is there any kind of consistency? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people don't listen to their gut. Your gut tells you, but then your heart and your friends and your parents and the, the scariness and fear keep you in. What if I don't find another job? What if I don't find another person? At least I'm getting this out of this, you know, and there's so many people that aren't, and I don't want to do this again. I don't want to send resumes and, and, and we convince ourselves to stay because it's easier and I've just never been someone that can be okay with easier Mm. because I just know 
that there's so much potential out there. There's so many parts of myself I haven't discovered yet. So yeah, so I left bachelor and I became unemployed. I was making $3,000 like a week being a producer on like ABC's primetime. I went from like a daytime talk show to like ABC's like primetime night show. But you know what? I was happier because I was like, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't want to be executive producer of The Bachelor one day. So why am I giving them my entire life and energy? But I loved that job. I learned so much about love, about heartbreak, about how to interview people, about how to make a show, about what, it, how to get a soundbite. I needed to work there in order to like be a host one day. And so then I was unemployed for a very long time after that. What's a very long time? I left in March of 2017. So it wasn't until I want to say September or August of 2017, where I got a job at Clever, which was this YouTube channel. And was that through Jill? Yeah. So how crazy is this? So Jill's a producer, was a producer on Ellen is now a producer on Clever. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great point. So Jill was a woman that did my Skype interview. That was the reason I was able to move to LA to intern at Ellen. The industry is so small, leave everywhere on a good note. Um, I had made my own connections at Clever, but also I think Jill being there definitely helped. But yeah, so I would say it was, I want to say like six months, which I think was like a long time. But not that long. Like, okay, let's just like break this down in real life. You went from being a producer, like happy, like love the job, but not really what you wanted most deeply, at least at that time Mm -hmm. to living your dreams in six months. And yeah, that was scary. And I'm sure it was a lean time, Mm -hmm. but you did it. And I think so many of us trick ourselves into thinking that we can just like stay on the treadmill we're on and just keep going, going, going and figure it out on the side. And maybe you can, but sometimes I think it does take a bold leap like that. And I give you so much credit. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say, but yeah, as you, I'm sure you've heard like those six months were the worst I, I, I've never, I think it was the lowest point in my life because my parents had asked me to borrow money, which they had never done that before. And I had just left this really good paying job to follow my dreams. So I felt a lot of guilt, felt a lot of shame, a lot of resentment. Did I make the right decision? Should I be trying to like provide for my family back home? My parents were struggling financially then they're like, fine now. I also met a guy before I officially left and that was like six months of hell and anxiety and uh, not knowing what we were and me sort of leaning on this person for all my happiness. Cause I was unemployed and, and this person just not being ready, but I want to say kind of like dragging me along. It, it was, it was bad. So when that breakup happened, which was like my first major breakup, I was destitute and not having a job to go to when you're going through heartbreak. You know, I define heartbreak as overwhelming distress. You were calling it creative. I think all heartbreak is overwhelming distress. It's not, a guy dumping a girl. It's anything that's like hurting your heart. And so it was brutal. Like, you know, I didn't have money. I didn't have anywhere to go. All my friends were working. And we also like equate our success with happiness, I think, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I went from telling everyone I work on the bachelor and everyone's like, that's so cool to, Oh, I want to be a host, you know, like it was such a weird time. And that's why, um, as you said, the best things come out of heartbreak because I ended up creating a support group for people that are heartbroken in that time called heartbroken anonymous. And it's amazing. I mean, I wonder what that time taught you about self-worth and where is actually a sustainable place to derive it from. Cause so many of us, especially for creatives, like draw our self-worth from our career 
which even that's not a good thing because anything that's like tangible can leave you. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm curious where you derive your self-worth from today. Yeah. That's such a good question. I'm, I'm learning and I'm journaling and I, I don't have the answer. And I think I'm weary of someone who would have the answer to that, you know, yeah. I would imagine it's someone who's so enlightened, you know, like a Deepak, because <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, I think what you said is so profound just now, and you should probably repeat it because when we put our self-worth in relationships and in jobs, those are things that are always changing. Mm. You're not going to work at the job you're in until you're 80. Like most likely you're not. And who knows if you're relying on friends and external validation or relationships to fill you up, you just never know what'll happen. And so I'm really trying to that, that specific heartbreak really did teach me that I did not love myself and that I was leaning on someone else for my happiness. And, um, to be honest, it's something I'm, I'm still learning. It's really hard. Like love is something I, I so badly yearn for, so when I find it or when I get like a, a spoonful of it, I, I really want to just like jump in it and drown in it. But I think what I need to remember and what most people need to remember is like, I should be feeding myself that spoon, you know? Definitely. You know, I had this woman, Edith Eager. She's a Holocaust survivor wow. on a couple of the podcasts I produce. And one thing she asks is, would you want to marry yourself? Love that question. And when she said that, and I was like, no. Like, I need to fix that because I'm the only person I know I'm going to be with forever. Right. So this sounds like I, I was actually, I watched Summer House and like, you know, how the cameras on them all the time. Yeah. yeah. If I was on Summer House, I'd get made fun of so badly for this. But literally at night now, before I go to bed, I hug myself. Oh my God, Lauren, that's beautiful. <laughs> and I kiss my own arms <laughs> and it gave me chills the other night. And I just felt like, you know, until I am with the person I want to be, I was in a seven year relationship, which is a whole nother story. We can talk about some other time, wow. but like, until I'm with the person I want to be with forever, I have to be that person to myself mm. and it's hard, but I'm like, you know, what I like about being in a relationship is like, when I'm with someone, I slow down with them. Cause I'm like you like right. revving the motor all the time, going, 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 always hustling. But it's like, I need to take care of myself first. So like last night I forced myself to get into the bath, you know, cause I would want the person I'm with to tell me to take a bath. Yeah. So I'm trying to do that. And then the other thing about the self-worth, which I don't have the answers either, but one thing that really helped me, it was ironically another Holocaust survivor, which kind of makes sense because obviously you get to like the meaning of life. Yeah. There's a book called man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. Okay. Have you ever read it? No, I'm going to write that down though. Man's search. For okay. Meaning. So this is what got to me. And it was like the first year and a half I was out here and I was like very much in an angsty stage of like, why hasn't it happened yet? Like as a 23 year old, right. Little asshole. Oh. <laughs> um, but you know, I read this book and there was a scene where the Nazis, you know, he comes into Auschwitz and he was a psychiatrist and he had his life work, like his manuscript inside of his coat jacket. Wow. And he brought it to them and he said, you know, please like, don't take this away from me. This is my life's work. This is everything. Please, please let me keep this. Right. The Nazis took it and then they set it on fire. Oh my God. And he said, in that moment, I realized I was no longer a psychiatrist all I was, was how I loved other people and my relationship with the higher power and nothing else was real. Like anything else, physical, your career, all that can be taken away from you. But the only thing that can't be taken away from you is your relationship with yourself, how you love others and your relationship with the higher power. So I do think it lies in that. I don't live that yet, but I aspire to. But you are also facts. The fact that you kiss yourself and hug yourself is so beautiful. I think we should all do that. And 
I've been really trying to love myself too. I'm like, what would I tell my friend to do? And when I need to study and do work, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to put on the nanny on HBO right now. Like, I love her. I love her. That's what's going to make me laugh and smile. And I'm trying to be very nice to myself. I'm not being as guilty if I want to have like chocolate, you know, like it's just enough beating up Naz because she's, she's really all I got. And I love that you share that with everyone. It, It is so so, so important. And it's, I think probably the most profound, important lesson that we all need to learn in life. And, um, I'm definitely getting closer. It's, it's just, it's so hard and it's sad. It's like, why is it so hard to love ourselves? Why it's just, well, why is any of this so hard? Like, I don't know why, but as a kid, I like had this delusional theory that I would get to a certain age and then have it figured out. And then I kept reaching those ages and still didn't have anything figured out yet, you know? And I'm like, well, I guess that life is hard, but another person, Glennon Doyle always says like, life is hard, but pick the right hard things. And I think that your career and your life is such a great example of it. Like everything you did was still really hard. It's just, you were picking the right hard things, you know, like transitioning your career all those times. That was very difficult. You went through one of the lowest moments in your life and trying to transition into hosting, Mm -hmm. but you picked the right hard thing, even though it was brutal. And I'm curious, like, cause a lot of people end up in golden handcuffs and it's a high level problem to have, but it's still an issue Mm -hmm. where you're attached to this brand or a company or profession that doesn't really serve you, but you're attached to the status of it. Right. How did you divorce yourself from the status of being a bachelor producer? Yeah, that's so funny. I remember I was on a call with someone who had left the show before me and she said, you'll never work on a bigger show. She said that to me. She said, you'll never work on a bigger show. So that always stayed with me. And once I accepted that, I was like, yeah, but I don't care. Like with everything it came with, like, but now I get eight hours of sleep and now I can date and now I can exercise and now I can follow my dreams, you know? So I think it's really all comes down to what you were saying, our self-worth, our self-worth, not listening to our gut, choosing to ignore red flags or what your body's telling you. I do want to say it's easier said than done. And sometimes you can't, you can't leave. Right. And so I don't also don't want to offend people because sometimes you just don't have that option. And so all we can say is like, be kind to yourself. Like my mother, she's a teacher and my mom doesn't drink water and it really, really worries me. And she's like, I have to pee all the time. And like, if I drink water, I'd have to pee all the time. So I like, can't drink water during the day. And I'm like, mom, like we need to reassess this because like you need to drink water So it's just like, if you can't leave, like if you're in a situation like my mom and you just can't leave the job you're in right now, like just start thinking long-term, maybe you can't this year or next year, but maybe start creating like a five-year goal for yourself, you know, or, or find ways to, to drink water in the middle of the day, whatever that metaphorically means for you. But I, I love that you brought this topic up because it's true. Like a big thing that's always kept me going is, um, this Oprah interview she did before her talk show. Have you seen it? No, I want to see it though. So it's like an old school interview. I forget who she does it with, but the Oprah Winfrey talk show had just gotten announced and she sat down and, and the um, reporter asks her like, you know, you have this new talk show. It's so great. And she's like, yeah, I'm so excited. And he's like, and what if it doesn't do well? Like he was very much like, well, what are you going to do if it doesn't do well? And she was like, I'll be okay. Because I am not defined on whether or not a show does well. I'm defined by how I treat other people and how I love other people. And it was just like, 
you know, Oprah had done all this work we're doing right now back then. And, and it's a testament to why people love her so much. She really shares her insights with the world. And it's true. It's like, you're going to be okay. You really are. Like, you're not defined by working at The Bachelor or being the wife or husband of so-and-so or being the mother of this person. You are defined by how you treat other people and what you bring into the world, whether it's like a smile to a stranger and, and how nice you are to yourself. So true. I got chills when you're telling that Oprah thing. And I love the other thing you said when you're like, you can make this hard decision, but the sky will still be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's a comfort in that. Like I felt this before, like in my darkest moments and my deepest heartbreaks, knowing that like, there's a lot of other people who are happy right now gave me hope that maybe I could be one of them someday. Yeah. You know, and that they're the, like, life is still going on, even though for me, it stopped. But also like happiness is like right now, which is, I think the hardest thing Mm. for all of us to grab. Explain that. Like, it's not like when I have this job, I'm going to be happy or I've had to stop telling myself this. Oh, when I have a boyfriend, my life's going to be so much better. Like, no, that is not the case. I have a very full life now. My dad always told me the house you buy is the house you fix. Meaning like a lot of people, especially in boomer generation, were like, oh, I can't wait to have a house one day. And then you get the house And it's just like everything, termites, leaks. What are we going to do with the yard? We got to knock this wall down. It's like when you attach your happiness to a certain thing or outcome, it's always going to be shitty. If you have so much money, you might like lose friends Mm. or people might get mad at you for what you're spending your money on, you know, Or, or you might make a wrong decision and gamble and lose it all. And then who you are, you know what I mean? Like, it's important that we are just happy with who we are right now. And and we try and be happy with the little things we have right now. Yeah. That's such a great point. And staying present. Cause like, literally this is all we have. Like the future is whatever it is. And the past is done. So you're so insightful, Naz. You're so good, Lauren. (laughs) We need to hang out after this. You're such a wonderful human. I would love that. Yeah, we can discuss where we can get our self-worth from. Yes. (laughs) Our self-worth journey. So I do want to talk a little bit more about Heartbroken Anonymous. Okay. Tell me about how this came to be, where you are with it now, and how we can join. Yeah, totally. So basically, um, I was sharing how I got really heartbroken at the end of 2016. Beginning of 2017 is really when it happened. But before that relationship ended, which was sort of like my first real thing into relationships, um, my neighbor was going through a heartbreak and I had barely met her and she was with someone for over 10 years. And she knocked on my door crying because they broke up. And she was just like, I need someone to talk to. And I don't want to talk to my mom or my sister. And I was like, why? And she's like, because they're going to tell me I'm so much better than him or that I, you know, I need to move on. And I'm physically like not ready to hear that yet. And so I listened to her story. And and when she left, I started to think about this concept of how we genuinely as humans are willing we're more willing to tell strangers how we actually feel about something than our own friends and family. Not because our friends and family suck, but because they're going to tell us things that maybe we're like, so not ready to hear. I mean, I can tell you from experience, like I hate, I hate, hate, hate when someone's going through a breakup and their friends are like, they weren't your person. Yeah. It's like, who are you to tell someone whether they are or not? And you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe they're not their person. I just think it's so weird. Yeah, but it's interesting. Some people say that with such confidence. Like, how do you know? Yeah. It's like the, nobody was in that relationship with you. 
And they just say things like, you know, everything happens the way it's supposed to. And when you, when you're going through a breakup, when you're going through a divorce and you're going through a miscarriage, when you're going through a lot of things that cause heartbreak, you are in a cloud and fog of sadness. And you know what? It, a lot of people are very much still in denial. These are the stages of grief, right? Or, or have hope that like, it's going to come back. And so to me, the best thing to do is just like, listen to someone and be there for them and, and not pass judgment. And the easiest way to do that is to surround them with strangers. So when I had met my neighbor and this happened, I was thinking about her and I was like, well, oh, this is kind of how we make the bachelor because all these cast members get really close with us as producers because they're telling us their life story and, you know, all their emotional triggers from past relationships, because we're like the stranger that they can just say anything to you. And so Shortly after when I went through the heartbreak and got blindsided by this person and I, like I told you, fell into a depression. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I had nightmares. I um, started going to therapy, but therapy is like 175 a session. I was like, oh my God, like I don't have $800 a month to go to a therapist. Like I'm not working right now. Heartbroken Anonymous was sort of this community I created because I needed it. And so I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if we can put a bunch of people together that are just kind of feeling the same way so that one, we can remind them they're not alone. And two, we can't take their heartbreak away, but make them feel better for an hour. So long story short, Heartbroken Anonymous is not a 12-step program like Alcoholics Anonymous, but it is a support group where you can come. Anybody can come from anywhere in the world because now it's taking place virtually on Zoom. I do the meetings twice a month. And people come and listen and share stories of heartbreak. And sometimes people come and just listen because you don't have to share if you don't want to. And, and, and it is very um, cathartic because when you're going through heartbreak, whatever it is, like we've mentioned, you sort of feel like the world is happening to you. You know, like you're just like, you can't think about work. You can't think about anything else. And it's just like the one thing consuming your mind and energy. And it's debilitating. So when you go to Heartbroken Anonymous and you listen to other people going through things, you're like, okay, okay, I'm not the only person going through this. You know, maybe you can reference someone's story later on in the week that you heard and just remind yourself you're not alone because I believe there's more hope in togetherness than being alone. And that's basically what Heartbroken Anonymous is. I do two meetings a month. Um, you can sign up at heartbrokenanonymous.com to find out when the dates are, you know, it's like minimum $10 donation to join, but, um, yeah, I've been doing it for four years now, which is crazy. And through the pandemic, it has been so, so helpful and, and so rewarding. Oh my gosh. So amazing. I, I love that you're doing this and it's so needed because I think the other thing that happens too in those, like I noticed this with my past breakup is you're like two weeks out from the breakup and everyone assumes you're fine. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there, there are people that are checking in on you the first few days and maybe even the second week. But then two weeks pass, it's like everyone evaporates. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? So I think that that is such a great place for somebody to come and express their ongoing grief over the loss of any loved one, you know, or any loved thing. Right. And grief. I mean, there's this quote by Pablo Neruda, which I love. And he says, loving is so short, but forgetting is so long. And it is so long. And what's cool about HBA is that people come and share things that they would never say out loud. I remember one time a guy came and he was like, I met this woman. We dated for six months. I thought we were going to get married. And that was 25 years ago. And I can't talk to my friends about it. I'm embarrassed. But like, and that's what makes me sad about society is like, sometimes there's things that aren't acceptable. And, and another reason why I started Heartbroken Anonymous is because I was like, 
it's so crazy. We're expected to wake up the next day and resume life as is like, I don't understand why people can't get sick leave for mental issues. Yeah. Even something as small as like getting dumped. Like you can't really expect that person to be like fully into their job at, in that point in time. And so, yeah, it, it's been so nice to be in a space where you literally can cry. You can say whatever you want and you don't have to be embarrassed about it because grief takes a long time. And like you were saying, even like a month out, I, you know, a lot of people will be like, Oh, this person's good. They're dating. They're back on the apps or, you know, like we had fun, but it's like, that doesn't mean that they're not really sad on the inside. still. Oh yeah. I mean, you can be back on the apps. You're probably just trying to muscle through. We all do it. (laughs) Exactly. Or whatever it is, whether you had a good day with a friend, it doesn't mean that they're actually really good just because their outside looks like it. So I could talk to you for hours because you just are amazing and deep and have such an incredible story. I do want to go back to your younger self though. When you first hit your boots on the ground here in LA and you're like, it's all happening. I'm going to work on the Ellen lot and my dreams will be here tomorrow. At least that's how I was. So I'm assuming you were too. <laughs> so funny. Um, if you too, like, so your younger self, like your 22 year old self and you were standing in the same room looking at each other, what do you think? you would say to her and why? Be patient. I think the biggest thing that I struggle with in life is patience. I want everything immediately. I want it to happen right away. I want it to happen like in the easiest way. And I got to where I wanted to be. I mean, I just hosted the Oscars E coverage like on camera, which is what I left Ellen to do was be a PA on this exact show that I'm now hosting on camera, which amazing is super full circle for me, but it took what nine years. Like it took me nine years, which like, like you were saying in the grand scheme of like infinity in the universe is a blink of an eye. But for us here on earth, like nine years is a very long time. And so I think when we come out of college, we're sort of bright eye and bushy tailed and we think we're going to like get it right away. And it's just like, take a deep breath and like learn the lessons and, and, and be really good and and learn from every day and every person you meet and you'll get there. It'll happen. It just might not happen tomorrow, but it'll happen if you believe it will. And what do you think she would say to you now and why? Oh, I love this question. What would she say to me? I feel like back then I would have just come from a place with a million questions. Like, what am I going to make it or whatever? But I think she would say you killed it or you did so good. I think she'd be really, really proud of me. I think she would be too. I'm proud of you and I'm inspired (laughs) by you. Thank you so much for being here. You're awesome. Thanks, Lauren. I'm inspired by you. I'm going to hug myself and and kiss myself tonight. And I think everyone listening should do the same because um, you are definitely a bright light in the world. And um, you're such a good interviewer. and And I enjoyed my time here and learned from you. So thanks for having me. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guest, Naz Perez. For more info on Naz, follow her at Naz Perez on Instagram. Check out her podcast, I Don't Get It, wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about Heartbroken Anonymous, go to heartbrokenanonymous.com. Thank you so much to Unleash associate producer, Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. Be sure to get my new song, Therapy, at the link in the show notes or in my Instagram bio. It is out now. And again, thank you. 
If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Naz at Naz Perez so she can share too. My wish for you this week is that you find ways to show yourself some love. Whether it's as small as hugging yourself at night or as big as finally prioritizing your dreams over everything else, you deserve that. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.